Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest in Rebecca Rush. And today, the topic is winter riding. Rebecca is a lifetime athlete. She's been an athlete for about 40 years, and she has done everything from rock climbing to rafting to bikepacking, ultra-endurance cycling. She has done it all, and she brings with her a wealth of knowledge. She's also a two-time winner of the Iditarod Trail Invitational, and she is the perfect guest to talk to us today about riding in cold weather. Today is a little bit different than what we typically do on the podcast. Usually we get to know the stories of the riders, but this is something new that Bikes for Death wants to be doing uh, going forward, which is tackling topics. Uh, so this one today is on winter riding, and we have more topical series coming your way. But if you want to know more about Rebecca, I actually had her on the podcast in 2021, so you can check out that episode. It's episode 70, and we talk a lot more about Rebecca and her story but again, today we're talking winter riding. We had an excellent chat. She has a wealth of experience and achievement. She has achieved so much in her 40 years and she brings all of that knowledge to light today in today's podcast. But before we get into it, let's take a moment to thank the people that made it possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. One cool thing about being a patron is you get access to the private Facebook group. I let you know what guests are coming up and give you an opportunity to ask questions. And on this topic in particular, we got a lot of feedback from our patrons and a lot of our questions today came from them. So thank you very much for being part of today's discussion. And without further ado, let's thank our newest patrons, starting with Alish Zavaral and Johnny Nepali. Thank y'all both for signing up to be sustaining members of the podcast. And if you would like to help produce these shows, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death. All right. Today's episode is also brought to us by the Red Granite Grinder. You may remember that I did an episode on this uh, race and I actually went last year. Well, they're doing it again and it's time for you to register. The Red Granite Grinder is on October 14th this year. And the thing that really sets this race apart from many of the other ones is all of the private land that they access. If I remember correctly, I believe he manages 24 different contacts with private landowners that you can only get access to during this event, which is a really cool thing. They have race links for everybody, starting with a 12-mile kid ride. They have a 30-mile non-competitive course along with a competitive 50, 85, and 144-mile distances. And this year, Scotty Lechuga, who's been on the podcast a few times, is going to be there racing and signing up. She's also putting on a free gravel clinic on Thursday that is free to anybody that signs up for this event. They also have group rides for everybody on Thursday and Friday. And they have a beer release and concert in the downtown area on Friday evening. For more information and to register, head over to ironbull.org. You can find out all the information about the Red Granite Grinder, and you can also learn about a new event that they're putting on, the Midwest Bikepacking Summit, which is definitely worth checking out. And I am trying to be there myself, uh, seeing if we can work it out so I can be there. Um, if I am, I would love to see you there. So again, go over to ironbull.org to check it out and to register. 
and I hope to see you there. All right, everybody, ching, 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 the bills have been paid, and, and now it is time to get to my episode with Rebecca Rush. I'm a huge fan, and I'm so glad that she was able to come on the podcast and share some nuggets of knowledge with us. But before we get to today's episode, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. stoked to talk to you <laughs> oh man i'm i'm more stoked awesome yeah thanks for uh thanks for doing this it's nice to yeah it's definitely nice to have you back on the podcast yeah it's been uh 73 episodes since we've had you on so it's uh, overdue Way to go. you were like doing podcasts before they were cool you know <laughs> <laughs> at least bike packing ones <laughs> yeah exactly there are some other early adopters. I wish I picked it up even earlier. I wish I picked up podcasting back in uh, the Eco Challenge days. Yeah, no that, shit, huh? That, You'd have so much cool content. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right, well, uh, Rebecca Rush, welcome back to the podcast. It's so great to have you back on the. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you back on the podcast. It's an honor. My favorite podcast. I love it. Um, thanks for having me back. It's you said how many episodes since I've been here last? Yeah, it's been 73 episodes. So you were on the podcast back on episode 70. And this one will be 143. What did we talk about? I don't even remember. <laughs> we talked <laughs> about a that. lot. Yeah, we talked about a lot of stuff. And I was going to recommend to listeners that they go back and they listen to that one because we I mean, we talked about your book. We talked about the Do Good Foundation. We talked about Eco Challenge. We talked about um, oh Laos. Is it was it in Laos that ride you did? Uh, yeah, to honor your yeah. father. Cool, lots of good stuff. <laughs> yeah, we talked. We talked about a lot of stuff, and that's a great um, yeah for people who uh, enjoy this episode or just enjoy the podcast. That's a great one to go back and listen to, um, and for people who don't don't know i'm a i'm a huge rebecca rush fan um you were actually one of the people who inspired me in my very early 20s uh to kind of wrap my head around what adventure sports is what endurance athletes are and really that was that was the thing that was the thing that got me off of drugs and out of jail and on a, a healthier path. I mean, that was the thing that that really um, was a springboard uh, for me in my life. I I watched. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, like the Eco Challenge is an adventure race that was, I think, it was 1995 to 2002. It was around those years, and uh, that was put on by Mark Burnett, who's now really well known for like Survivor and stuff. <laughs> Um, but it was just, it was billed as the world's toughest race. And I think by most standards, it probably lived up to its reputation. 
And uh, it was a team sport, and you were on, what was the name of the team? You were probably on multiple teams, but you were yeah, on. Yeah, I was the captain. Um, uh, team Rubicon was like our sort of main name, but then um, it was Team Montreal. It was Team, de- depending on who the sponsor was, Team Pearl Izumi, Team, yeah. Yeah. yeah Who- so. Whoever would pay y'all to go get weird in the woods <laughs> and do crazy shit. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that that was my endur- my introduction to an endurance sports uh and I I still to this day have all of the eco challenges on VHS tapes in my mom's house. I don't have a VHS player, but if I ever get one I could go back and go back and watch them. So from your you've been doing, you know, adventure sports and been in the sport world for over 30 years now, is that that right? Yeah, maybe even maybe even 40. I mean, I got into sports as a, in high school with cross country running, um, and then went to college and really, you know, after college, um, I found rock climbing and that was kind of my first foray and found rock climbing in Illinois where I was living and, and started dabbling and playing, um, indoors and out and then outdoors. And then that inspired me to head West you know, put all my stuff in a car and, and go see what I could find. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a long time ago. That was, yeah. 90s. Where was home before you moved out West? Um, I lived in Illinois down or uh, Chicago suburbs. Oh, good. Um, but then, yeah, kind of took some time exploring, climbing, ended up in Truckee, um, ended up in, uh, Southern California. And then about 20 years ago, ended up in Idaho and that's where, or a state put. So when exploring, looking for, uh, you know, where to live. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a good, yeah, it's a good way to do it. So we are going to be talking a lot about uh, winter riding today. That's kind of the overall topic. And um, you're an excellent person to speak to this. And growing up in Chicago and now living in Idaho, um, I know that you're exposed to the cold on a on a regular basis. Um, the, the fanboy in me though, I, I have to ask a question about eco challenge. I'm, I'm curious just as a fan after, you know, between 30 and 40 years of doing this is eco challenge, the world's toughest race or was it, I know it's no longer well. And then he brought it back for a 20 year anniversary and now, but I mean, you know, has that lived up to its reputation as being the world's toughest race? I, yes, I will say yes, because, um, and for those who aren't familiar, go back and watch some, some videos. It's pretty incredible. So because of a lot of factors, um, one, it's multi-sport. So you've got to ride, run, kayak, ride camels, whatever's thrown at you. So, you know, jack of all trades, maybe master of none, rock climbing is <laughs> included. So you've got multi-sport, you've got team aspects, so you've got the team dynamics you're working with, and then they don't really tell you where to go. So you've got the navigational aspects. So you need to hit checkpoints along the way that might be a hundred miles apart or, or whatever. So, so with all those things, you've got to have mastery of sport. You've got to have really good personal dynamics. You've got to be able to have a lot of intellectual thinking about, okay, we're lost. How do we get across this river? How do we build this boat, you know, to get down this river? Um, and then you also, the clock never stops. So you also throw in sleep deprivation and massive, massive fatigue of events, you know, that took seven to 10 days to complete. And so all of that thrown together, it really is expedition racing. So it's really the package deal. 
And what's cool is with my, with my cycling and bikepacking is I really feel like I've come full circle and I'm going back to those skills that I learned adventure racing, which are planning, navigation, pacing, you know, sleeping, how to carry your stuff. Um, I really feel like I'm coming back to those days with where my cycling is going right now, which is exploratory rides, adventure rides, um, self-supported type stuff. So it's kind of cool that that, yeah. So I would say adventure racing, expedition racing was the toughest kind of racing I've done. Um, but I'm going to put, I did a rod and winter bike packing <laughs> right up there with it. The only difference is I don't have to like get in a kayak and put my bike on a kayak and something else. It's sort of single sport. So I guess in that way it makes it a little easier, but it also makes it a little harder because I remember, you know, doing expedition racing, like you're, you're like sick of the bike section, but you know that a paddling section is coming up. So in some ways you got to sort of shift your focus, which was good for your brain and also good for your body to get off the bike, start walking a little bit, give your butt a rest, give other body parts a rest. And so in some ways, you know, long expedition cycling physically and mentally might be a little harder just because there, there's no break, um, in, in the activity that you're doing, so to speak. Yeah. At this stage in your career, how do you pick what trajectory you want to go on. I I would have to assume you could probably do anything you want, you know. Um, How how do you decide, you know, is it just, oh, I'm feeling this type of riding or this is interesting me right now? Like, how are you picking what what you uh, dive into? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, And honestly, how I pick hasn't changed in 40 years of being an athlete. And I pick based on passion and curiosity, what makes my hands sweat, what I'm a little bit scared (laughs) of, you know, those things are all, you know, in our, in our brain, those things are motivating, you know, curiosity is a powerful motivator. Um, You know, so basically if I'm like, I'm that little kid who camped in my backyard of like, What's over that next hill? Could I do it? And so I still pick based on that. And, you know, I've had a lot of trajectories of like being a rock climber, competing in paddling, you know, adventure racing, and then morphing to cycling when at age 38, you know, getting specific in cycling. But even within cycling, it's like I was doing 24 hour solo races and a hundred milers and stage races, you know, and now I'm really into bike packing and, and, you know, long distance expedition events or races. So even within that, I I think that's the key to victory for anyone who, you know, hopefully movement for me, movement is medicine and and I need to always be moving. So people are like, when are you going to retire? Um, never, you know, I'm lucky if I've been able to form a career out of this, but I would be doing this, you know, even if it weren't my job. And so I, I really try to choose on passion and, you know, like Leadville is a good example. I raced six or seven years of the Leadville trail 100. I won it four times, super satisfying. And there came a point where it was like, I've done everything I need to do here. I love that time period, but I'm going to move on. And that's where I started getting into more expedition riding and, and things like that. So I think it's important for anyone to, to choose with passion. And, and for me, I'm just that kid who wants to go see, you know, what's around the next corner and could my bike take me there? Yeah. 
That's a great uh, answer. Passion and curiosity. And I think that's definitely something that everyone can relate to. And I think it's really cool that you've been able to maintain that over a, a long period of, of your career, you know, and, and that that is your driving force. And that's something that everyone can relate to. Um, so that is cool. I, I have no idea um, how to introduce you to my audience. Um, <laughs> So I decided instead of me introducing you, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Uh, how do you wrap up a 40-year career? How do you? How who is Rebecca Rush, the athlete? Uh, yeah, I'm going to leave yes. the hard hard work to you. I'm just going to yeah, sit back yeah, and okay, drink my thanks. coffee. Put me on the spot. And, <laughs> and you know, I think it's it's an awesome question because yeah, who are we defined as people? Are we defined by our job, what we're working on, what we do? Um, and you know, since what I my play and my work are combined, um, it's always a little hard to describe myself. But um, I'll just do brief. Seven time world champion, um, mountain bike hall of fame, gravel hall of fame. I've been an ultra endurance athlete my entire life from running to rock climbing to adventure racing and, and now cycling. I am the creator of the Be Good Foundation, which uses the bicycle as a catalyst for healing, empowerment, and evolution. I'm the founder of Rebecca's Private Idaho, a big gravel event. And and really, I call myself an explorer more than an athlete because, yes, athlete is part of what I do. Uh, but I'm I'm really using being in the outdoors to explore both physically explore the world around me, but also explore who I am and what I'm capable of. So a lot of my mission and a lot of my work is, yes, to continually explore myself, but to also empower other people with wisdom or tools or learnings that I've had um, so other people can go find the outdoors and find the magic in it. And so I love hearing that I inspired you to do that in your 20s. It's awesome. That's still my mission is to keep getting myself outdoors, um, but also getting other people outdoors um, because there's a lot of magic in it. And so, so yeah, I guess that's me explorer that's and uh, maybe share of wisdom and instigator <laughs> of all sorts. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, and, and I, I want, that's important. Um, and I want to acknowledge and, and, and thank you for being willing to share uh, your experience with my audience. Um, there is a, a world of information that you have in your in your brain from experience. Um, and we're going to be talking about winter riding today specifically. Um, and I, I just appreciate you being willing to share this information because, you know, hopefully we're, we want to get other people out there riding and we don't want cold weather to be a reason not to go ride or not to go adventure and not to go explore. And, um, it is, it is meaningful. I know that a lot of people are going to be able to take this information and be able to go out and, and, and go farther than they would have. And so, yeah, I, I just appreciate your, your willingness. And that's something that I know of you as a person who wants to promulgate and find ways to help other people access the outdoors. Um, and that's, that's something I'm passionate about and I get excited about. And so, um, I, I think it's worth, uh, recognizing your willingness to do that. Cause I know some people might want to keep that information close to their vest. You're training <laughs> your competition here. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's, uh, let's talk a little winter riding. Um, I think a good place to start, I have a list of questions, but let's talk about some of your personal experience with winter riding. I feel like, 
um, the ITI, uh, the Iditarod Trail Invitational is probably a great place to start. Do you do you think so? It's got to yeah, be the pinnacle actually, of. Yeah, well, let's step back before that because I I will say winter riding and winter you know winter expedition riding is pretty new. It's kind of the newest evolution of sort of my experience cycling. And my friend Jay Peterberry, who is really the you know the grandfather of all winter bike expeditions, I think he's won the Iditarod Trail Invitational ten times. He lives in Idaho. He's a good friend, adventure racing friend. He's been poking me and, and trying to get me to do winter expeditions for a long time and i just kept saying no 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 i'm not good in the cold i have rain odds i have poor circulation i have no desire i'm not doing it um so for years he was trying to push me to come to his event the fat pursuit which is a qualifier for that i did ride trail invitational he'd been pushing 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 and finally i'm like okay you know I'll I'll try it. And, you know, when we talk about what are driving forces um, or motivators for us, fear, you know, and curiosity, fear is a really big one. Um, and so with Jay's prodding, I started to be curious about fat biking and just looking at it and being like, and knowing I actually needed a challenge, you know, I needed something that scared me and being outside in the winter self-supported really scared the hell out of me. And so I kind of accepted his prodding and went to his event, Fat Pursuit, and, you know, basically got my feet wet um, and and learned, you know, and started to learn. And that was only five or six years ago of, of starting to get involved with winter bike expeditions. Again, I needed a challenge after, you know, a long time of being an athlete. I was scared of it. And there was an opportunity right there with a friend being like, I think you can do this. I think you have the right grit and attitude, you know, but you just need to learn how to survive in the winter. And so it really was that. And um, I what I thought was impossible, which was eventually getting myself to the Iditarod Trail Invitational. I thought that was impossible. Um, but the journey has been really cool. I've done Iditarod Trail Invitational the 350, the short one, um, <laughs> I think three or four times, three or four times. I can't remember. Um, I know I you won it twice. I know you won I it in 2019 and 20, so, three times. Yeah, okay. Three times. Yeah. I got 2019 um, and 2021. No. no, I've won it twice. You're right. So the second year I went back, um, at a much better race, totally dialed and in control, but I didn't win that year, which is, is fine. Um, and then the following year I went and with my husband, we did it, um, without actually going inside and using the facility. So we really did do slept outside with a commitment. So I went from year one, I was a blubbering mess and barely like dragged myself to the finish line, even though I won, um, <laughs> year two, I cleaned up my act, had a way better race, didn't win, but was like way more proud of that achievement. And then year three, I took it a step further and, uh, you know, didn't take, didn't go into any of the shelters, didn't take the water that was available or the food that was available and really just did our own thing with the ultimate goal of hopefully slowly building towards potentially doing the thousand mile, the full length. Um, I did ride trail invitational, which, is a big daddy. It's, you know, a month on the trail, um, yeah. self-supported, really living out in Alaska, but I never thought I would be able to do overnight self-supported things in, in winter temperatures, minus 40, minus 20, howling with the wolves. So, um, that's kind of how I got involved. And 
you know, for anyone listening who's thinking about winter bike packing, I'm not suited for it. I get cold all the time. And there's so much equipment and learning and knowledge that really it's not the fastest, fittest person that wins. It's there's so much to um, the survival of it and the commitment of it, but it's, it's very powerful to learn that you can survive in winter and ride your bike in winter. It's really cool. So um, that continues to be kind of, you know, I don't have it mastered, you know, I haven't done the long I did a ride yet and and it still really scares me, but um, I've learned a lot over the last five years. Thanks to JP and and a whole bunch of other people. You find bike packers are awesome people. And then you go further. Winter bike packers are kind of even another breed that maybe, you know, they like to howl at the wolves and another you know, level of crazy. A, a little bit more level of um, commitment, you know, crazy, <laughs> call it whatever you want. But yeah, so that's kind of my intro into into winter bike packing, which is pretty recent. Yeah, that's really uh, that's really valuable to understand with this conversation. Um, what is it? I, okay, and and for the purpose of this conversation, I live in Texas, where if it gets below 40 you know everybody's freaking out right so like my experience with winter riding is somewhat limited and that either makes me a really good person to host this episode or a really poor person but we'll find out but um winter riding and, and cold weather riding is scary and even yourself with all of your experience and all of the hard things you've done even you put off winter riding um, and, and, and fear was a motivator. It motivated you to not, not do it for a while. Uh, what, what is it about winter riding that is so, uh, scary and daunting for, to, ch- to, to tackle? Well, there, there's, there's two things. One, it's, it's the commitment, commitment level of, um, being in really cold temperatures and we all have been outside and when you're moving, you're warm. And when you stop moving, you get cold really fast in cold temperatures. And then you also add into that an aerobic activity where you're often sweating, you're getting blood flow going. Um, and so if, if you stop when you're sweaty, we all know what happens to water in cold temperatures is that it freezes. And so there are a lot of factors that add on instead of just like, riding hard, getting your heart rate up, um, you know, navigating, you're adding in the commitment of the cold and the elements. And truly, you know, I believe that winter or not, that we're sort of guests in the outdoors and that mother nature has the ultimate, you know, the ultimate say. Um, so yeah, I I mean, it's a primal fear of being cold. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes that feeling, you know, even getting out of your covers in the morning, you're like, Oh, it's cold. And you want to put on a robe and a sweatshirt. So it's, it's not a, a comfortable feeling for anyone. And so it's, it's pretty normal that there is fear around it. But the cool thing is there's so much cool equipment. There's so much education. There's a way to actually manage the sweat, manage the cold temperatures, keep your feet warm. You know, there, there's all sorts of stuff you can do with equipment and learning, but it's trial and error. You got to go out and, and see if it works for you. So again, that commitment level is something for, for people getting into, to winter riding, you know, you don't start with a I did ride trail invitational. You start with a one hour ride, you know, in a place that you can go fat biking. Um, you know, to me though, you live in Texas, like that, I don't know. Heat is also heat's gnarly. Like heat's almost 
harder to manage than cold sometimes because you can't, you know, there's nothing you can do to remove the heat and you can't remove the cold, but you put more layers on and you get moving or you do jumping jacks. Whereas if you're just dying hot, like doing the Arizona trail one year, never been so hot. (laughs) There's nothing (laughs) I could do about it. Yeah, that's a good point. You can layer up for winter, but yeah, it's it's a balancing act because when you're layering up, you're you can warm up, then you can sweat, then you could get cold, and that is kind of the 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 dance of of winter riding for sure. Um, yeah, let's get into some of the ins and outs. I've I've got a list of questions here. What okay. what is uh what is the weather like in Ketchum? So you live in Ketchum, Idaho. I know you mentioned you're living in uh, Ketchum, Ketchum. So uh, what's the weather like today in Ketchum? Just for a point of reference, and how many months of winter do y'all have there? Um, yeah, and I actually live you know 25, 30 miles north of Ketchum, so I'm outside of like the big city of Sun Valley, um, and we live in the mountains. And it, this morning it was, um, I don't know, it was like five degrees. You know, this morning I think it might be about fifteen now. I'm looking at snow right outside my window, and lots of skiing and fat biking to be had. And winter's probably. I don't know. Really, it's six months long, um, you know, and but not full on winter. Like it's already the days are getting warmer. And what I what's really fascinating to find and, you know, my CEO who moved here from Arkansas a couple of years ago, you know, when she first moved to Idaho, she's like thought 20 was really cold. You know, but now she feels like 20 is really warm because you start to acclimatize to the situation and you start to be like, oh, so when you're in it, there is acclimatization just like, you know, going to altitude or going to heat. You know, when your body's in a situation for a while, you start to get used to that. So here in Idaho, like when it turns 40 in the spring, people are wearing T-shirts and, you know, but in Texas, 40 is freezing. You're probably putting on booties and putting on you know, all the clothes that you have. (laughs) So, so yeah, it's an acclimatization, but, um, the nice thing is is we can all travel and, and get in or out of winter. And a lot of people do that here. It is a long winter, but it's also fabulous playground for a lot of really cool stuff. We're the exact opposite. It's, um, it's going to be like 80 degrees here. And we have, uh, instead of six months of winter, we have six months of summer. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the episode on riding in heat. We'll let you cover the there one for, uh, riding in cold weather. What about your personal relationship with riding in cold weather? Um, maybe over the last six years, are you getting to where you like it more? You enjoy it more? You tolerate it more? Or is it, is it always a mental barrier to, to get out and ride in cold weather? Um, no, I, I actually love it. And I'm probably going to go fat biking today. Cause one, the gear is set up, you know, pogies on my handlebar, you know, I've got, um, panniers on that I can stuff a puffy coat in. So I've pretty much learned that like the nice thing about a, a winter bike is there's a lot of space to throw layers in on. So, you know, I would never ride without my pogies. I would never ride without my 45 North boots. So hands and feet, super important. And the rest of it, you're layering on and off. So, so yeah. And, you know, I'll do a lot of my training, um, in the winter, you know, I do a couple, do- couple days indoors on Zwift or on the trainer, but then I want to go outside. And so, no, going on a one, two hour, four hour ride around here is in the winter is just, I would treat it the same as I would do, you know, a summer ride. I get excited about it. You know, I check the conditions. I pack the stuff that I'm going to need for the weather that day. 
Um, that said, if it's dumping down snow, I might go skiing instead of biking <laughs> on that day. And so my personal relationship with fat biking is I love it. I'm really happy that I found it. That said, the big expeditions like um, Fat Pursuit or I did a Red Trail Invitational, that is a massive commitment. Like anyone who's training for a big event, um, I'm going to take that a little more seriously. And I'm still, you know, intimidated by going overnight. You know, I know I can do it. Um, but it's still like you take it real seriously and you make sure all your gear works. You make sure your lights work, that you've got the batteries because, um, that's the thing. If you're, if you're going and doing something big, um, or even a short ride on a fat bike is the room for room for error is smaller. You know, if, if you don't have a puffy coat with you and you get a flat tire and you start to freeze because you're just wearing your Lycra and like thin layers, but you have a mechanical, you know, that becomes more serious than if you're doing that in 80 degree weather. So, so it's just sort of, I, I, I view it. My relationship with it is like, you know, make sure your gear works and you've got the right stuff because a mechanical or, or a biomechanical or something happening out there has a bigger consequence when it's cold. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you were almost right on my notes. My next question was, uh, what, what do you think about riding, uh, in cold weather and poor conditions versus indoor riding on a trainer? I, I know me, man, I, I wuss out and I just hop on the trainer way too frequently during the winter. And I'd like to step out of that. And I'm sure many people would because being outside, uh, getting some UV rays and just being out in nature is a much better experience. But um, yeah, what are your thoughts on on riding indoors versus riding outdoors in, in poor conditions? Yeah, I mean, I do both in the winter and there's definitely like riding indoors. It's like, I'm going to get the hour done. It's super efficient on a work day. I can do it in the morning before, you know, office hours kind of stuff. So they're each a different on the weekends. I want to be outside. I want to go exploring, you know? Um, so I, I kind of, I kind of make my training day based on one, how much time I have. And two, I look at the forecast a lot more, in the, <laughs> you know, in the winter of like, Oh, it's going to be really nice tomorrow. It's firm snow. It hasn't snowed in a while. So the trails will be good. I'm going to go fat biking. The nice thing is that um, backcountry skiing and fat biking are sort of alternate weather patterns. Like when it's snowing and powdery, I want to go skiing when it's firm and hasn't snowed in a while that's a good day to go fat biking. So, so kind of the same as I would choose, you know, a ride in the summer. If it's pissing down rain, I might go for a hike instead of a bike ride, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, I might, or I might be like, Oh, I'm going to take a rest day and tomorrow looks good. I'm going to go tomorrow. So yeah. it's the same thing, looking at the weather, looking at the wind and even more than snow and precipitation. I look at the wind because that's probably, in my opinion, one of the worst elements. Um, <laughs> yeah. And especially fat biking, because wind does really suck the temperature down. It can blow the snow across the trail. So I've started to look at, um, I, I've used, I used some different weather apps, but, um, I've started to use one that, that has wind on it because it, it is kind of a factor. <laughs> Which one is that? Is that the epic weather ride one? No, it's weather underground. I use that oh, one. Oh, I use that one too. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there, if you're in an event and it's snowing, windy, whatever, you just deal with it. So yeah. you do. There, there's a there's a good app. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. It. It's called um, Epic Weather Rides, 
and you can actually like upload a ride with GPS file. You can upload your route. You can say when you're going to start and, and how long you think it's going to take you. And it'll show you your weather for the entire route. What? Yeah, oh, I'm so stoked. Thank you. It's a, yeah, no problem. It's uh, I just used it. I just did an ITT of a 400 mile route that I created here in Texas. Nice. And, uh, and uh, I had headwind going up and coming down. The wind, the wind was blowing uh, south uh, when I was going north, and it was blowing north when I was going south. And that then I knew it going into it, which I don't know if it makes it better or not, right? It's like you're going to have to deal with it one way or another. So, um, you know, but I think for like really inclement weather, absolutely knowing what you're going out into and and having the proper gear and the proper mindset is extremely valuable. Um, speaking of mindset, the next question is how much of winter riding is mental toughness versus the right gear? And there's a quote, I'm going to share a quote that you gave. Um, this was from bikepacking.com and this was from an expedition that you did in Iceland with Gus, I think it's Gus Morton and Chris Burkard. Um, Chris has been on the podcast a couple times. He's a great guy and he's a he loves his Iceland. Um, so that was a pretty cool expedition. And you, your quote is, big expeditions like this require a big emotional toolbox, one that matches the amount of physical gear that you bring. You can't buy those tools. You have to earn them the hard way. And so, again, the question is, how much of winter riding is mental toughness and how much of it is having the right gear? Super good question. But yeah, gear and mindset, those are two uh, mandatory pieces of equipment to develop. And, you know, I'll go back to the story of Jay Peterberry, who knew me really well as an athlete, um, you know, saying, you can do this. You know, you don't have the gear or the experience in winter riding yet, but you have the mindset in spades from, you know, being a lifelong ultra endurance athlete. And so, yeah, I, I actually would weight mindset over, I would weight mindset over fitness and gear. Um, because you look at someone, John Stamstead is a really good example, like the original ultra endurance bike packer. Um, he was doing the Iditarod trail invitational. Um, they were doing that long before there were fat bikes, before there were pogies, before there was all this equipment. They were just like, morphing regular mountain bikes and going out and riding in the snow and they did it and they carried spam and you know <laughs> wool and long underwear and didn't ha have all the techie gear and they they still did it and you know now they now I'm doing you know sort of modern winter bike packing with all this great equipment and fat bikes and five inch tires and I'm blown away at what you know, the early adopters to riding on snow were able to do without the equipment that we have. And so mindset comes first, 100%. But with the right equipment, if you're new to this, you know, you don't have four decades of, of ultra endurance experience with the right mind or with the right gear, you start to develop the mindset of confidence and learning and knowing that, and that's what happened to me, you know, in the last five years, knowing I can sleep out in minus 40 degree temperatures with no tent, just a little bivy and a huge bag and that I can survive. So the more you start to chip away with the gear and the experience, the more your mindset starts to build 
and grow. And I would say as you're getting into it or, or even, you know, if you've been into it for a long time, Jay's still away. Your first mindset is survival. And absolutely you want, you want to finish, you want to get out of your ride, um, with all your fingers <laughs> and toes and survival. And so I think that that's an important thing to take. When I went to fat biking, I was, I, I came from this racer mentality, going fast, never stopping. And I was, really had to adjust at the different pace and how, how slowly one it is to ride on snow, but also how much time you need to stop to de-layer, to put layers on, take layers off, put pressure into your tires, take pressure out of your tires. There's a, it's a slower pace and that's just part of it. And so I really had to learn the mindset of patience and that my, my first, my first goal is survival, you know, and then the second goal is, is racing or, or finishing your ride or whatever. Um, so I think going into it with a survival mindset is really important for people committing to, to stuff like this. Um, and starting small, you yeah. know, starting with us one hour rides, take going out on a friend on groomed Nordic trails where, you know, you're, you're starting to learn about tire pressure and you're learning what do you want to wear when you're getting sweaty when you're riding a fat bike. So you can learn that stuff, um, on sort of safer terrain and a safer sort of playing ground. You know, you're not going to jump into a hundred mile fat bike race for your first experience. And no matter how fit you are, I would say, don't do that, <laughs> you know, go out and ride a little first and then work your way into it. Cause the, the, the first time, um, I went to do JP's event, um, my husband and I, we thought we had all the right gear, all that stuff. We went to do fat pursuit. We made it about two hours and then we quit because we were in over our heads, our feet were freezing, even though we were like riding as fast as we could. And we both quit at different spots. And then we're texting each other. And I'm like, I'm only like a mile down the trail from you. I can't do it. It was minus 20 degrees and I wasn't prepared for it. So, um, and that's fine. I went back. I was like, okay, I need different boots. I need this. I need that. I need to practice a little more. So I was a little arrogant going in, not arrogant, but I'm like, I can ride. 24 hours. That's how long that event takes. But you're like, I'm tough. I've done I, yeah, hard I'm things. Tough. I got this. I can keep going. But, but I didn't, I wasn't prepared for the elements. So I went back and, uh, you know, got some different stuff, asked some questions, learned some things, started riding around here a little bit more, um, and went back the next year. And, and I think I've, I've won every year that I've gone, um, since, since that year. So learned a lot and not the winning's not the goal. Again, I'm going to reiterate surviving is the <laughs> goal. And it actually, no, I didn't win every year. I dropped out one year because I had a respiratory issue. I was 10 miles from the finish and oh. I actually, I was close, you know, but also was coughing up blood and just like, no, the point of this is survival. And people were like, why didn't you finish? It's like, because I didn't want to hurt my lungs any more than they were already hurt. So, so I did bail on that. So I think that that's an important thing when you're in committing environments, um, like snow and winter is being okay with self-rescue, being okay with, you know, not getting to whatever, you know, sort of mandate, whatever finish line you put out there, it really is kind of irrelevant. So ultimate goal, survival, and uh, if you don't finish your first event or your first ride, um, you've learned something. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, let's talk about coughing up blood for a second. Was well, that yeah. a was that a result <laughs> of of riding in cold weather and probably yeah. worth touching on? Yeah, <laughs> what, ha- yeah what happened? So, so when we talk about you know learning from our failures, we learn a lot more when we screw up or when something yeah. goes wrong than than when it's all you know sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. So right. so that event, you know, I've I've always had some respiratory issues, um, like the racer cough. I mean, we've all kind of gotten that. But breathing in and out, um, cold weather really is tough on the lungs. And, and I really exacerbated that by going hard in cold weather. And so what I've learned from that now is, is I actually use, and I have to use, I use a, a mouth, um, sort of mask called cold Avenger. And so what it does, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, any sort of face mask, which is nice to cover your skin in cold weather. Um, but this one has this nice soft plastic, like it looks like this little Darth Vader sort of breather thing. <laughs> um, it, it looks really tough actually, but I wear that, um, in the cold and I breathe through that thing and it, and it pre-warms the air, the air you're exhaling is warm. Um, and it doesn't get all wet like a buff because it's got that sort of soft plastic piece. So I wear that religiously um, when, I'm, okay. when I'm doing long winter rides. I've also really focused on um, breathing in the last few years and breathing techniques and nasal breathing. So um, we all know breathing in through your nose also pre-warms the air. Um, it also keeps me at a pace where I'm not going too hard. And so, uh, so I use a combination of a lot of nasal breathing and, uh, the, and the cold Avenger face mask for respiratory. And even if you don't have respiratory issues, a lot of people are getting coughs, getting sick, um, because they're just breathing freezing cold air. So that's yeah. a big, a big thing to, to figure out. Um, is I Googled is that mask that's that's gnarly that's like uh <laughs> it looks like post-apocalyptic type situation going on but uh yeah. definitely that see that that's a great tip and something i wouldn't even think of is is regulating your breath um to warm up your air and the potential damage that you're causing to your lungs i mean yeah minus 40 degrees you're just sucking in cold air um yeah so yeah that's that's really helpful uh, I assume you were okay after, after your coughing up blood incident, you, uh, you just yeah, rested okay, and recovered and yeah, gave myself a pretty severe respiratory infection and, you know, yeah. And so you, you end up, yeah, breathing in and so, but I learned a lot. I learned, um, and basically I thought I can't, I can't do this cold weather stuff. I just can't do it. You know, it's not for me. I'm not cut out for it. And that's where, again, I talked to Jay, who's a real mentor and he's like, try this mask, try this. Here's some stuff I do. And so in that failure, um, I learned, you know, a strategy and some equipment that I really needed in order to be able to operate in, in cold yeah. weather. Yeah. That's a great tip. All right, here's another one. Uh, here's a here's a, a term that I hear frequently. Be bold, start cold. True or false? Hmm. It depends on your intention. Um, and so if you're an event and you're gunning for the win, um, yeah, yeah, start cold. You're going to warm up really fast. If you're if you're go- if you're going to compete. Or you're going to complete. Those are two different things. And I'd say as you're new, um, go to complete. 
because so many people go out too hard, they get sweaty, they don't have their equipment dialed, um, and they end up dropping out anyway. So, so look at what, what is your intention for the rider event that you're doing? If you're going to complete, you know, I might start a little cold because one, you know, you are going to warm up, you, you know, but I wouldn't be sitting there shivering, you know, start comfortable and 10 minutes up the road, stop and take your jacket off. You know, so, so that's why people say, you know, starting cold is if you're really racing and you're trying to minimize that stop time, you're trying to minimize as many transitions as you can. But if you're trying to figure out what you're wearing, what's right for you in certain conditions, then start in whatever you're starting in and stop and take it off or put something else on a little bit later. So it really depends on, on your intention and how dialed in you are with with what jacket you like to wear. Like I know if it's 20 degrees, I wear this and this, you know, if it's, if it's 20 degrees and windy, I wear a different light windbreaker jacket. If it's, you know, below zero, I wear this and this. So it's going to take you some time to figure out what are your favorite pieces and what works for you. So if you have the confidence and you know that, you know, in 10 minutes, you're going to be warm because it's, 20 degrees out and you're wearing your favorite 20 degree stuff, um, then that's fine. But if you're still learning, I spend a lot of time, you know, taking things off, trying different combinations of this vest versus arm warmers versus that. So um, it really depends on the person and their intention. One of the things I'm picking up on, I feel like um, this is going to just be an underlying theme is, is patience uh, when winter riding, you know, you're talking about stopping to, you know, you're, you need to regulate your body temperature. You need to make sure that you're, uh, surviving and you're taking care of yourself. It sounds like patience is a huge factor when you're riding in, in cold weather. I, I love that you said that. And patience is definitely not, you can ask my husband or any of my other teammates. Patience is not, you know, my natural state of existence. And I really do feel like winter bike expeditions have taught me a lot of patience. And, you know, you can like ride super hard and be, you know, have too much tire pressure and being digging a hole in the snow and put out a lot of energy going nowhere and then someone will ride right by you with the right tire pressure and they're floating on top of the snow and they're chatting and they're not even sweating and so it's it, it's definitely a situation of of energy conservation and like riding I, i'm like he or she who who rides the easiest wins in the end yeah. if you can conserve the amount of energy by having right tire pressure, by not overheating, by eating one of the hardest things. So yeah, patience of the pace of it. And I'll just let everybody know if you're flying, you know, on a fat bike, you're going five miles an hour, like averaging <laughs> five miles an hour is really good. It's really yeah. fast. And anyone who rides in the summer would be like, what? So you have to wrap your head around the pace that is slower. The cool thing about slower pace is you see more. You see the grains of snow, you know, just like walking versus riding or right. being in the car versus being on a bike. The slower you go, the more you see. Um, and you really have time to look at the mountains and all that. But just accepting that. If you're averaging five miles an hour, you're crushing it. So yeah. don't get bummed out at yourself if you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm only going eight miles an hour because that's kind of fast on a fat bike. But yeah, <laughs> yeah patience that... is really, really, really important. Um, 
Yeah. And acceptance of, you know, if the snow's soft, the snow's, you know, it's not good. It's not rideable. Okay. Then you walk your bike. You walk yeah. your bike a lot um, while fat biking. And that's just part of it. And it, it's people not coming from bike expeditions. Well, if you're doing summer bike expeditions, you know, you walk your bike up some of the hills because you're loaded and all that. But I was also surprised of like, oh, I'm just going to walk my bike. And even if you're going to win, you're you're walking your bike, even if you're at the front of the right. back. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, patience also with uh, just a slower pace, you know, that everything is slowed down. Your movements are slowed down because you're cold. I mean, everything is yeah. is slower. All right. So here's a here's an important question. Uh, layering. In my mind, layering has got to be one of the more critical factors when when riding in cold weather because you don't want to sweat and get cold. And obviously you can only speak to your own uh, experience with like your body and how to regulate your your layering and your body temperature and stuff like that. But can you give some some tips and some thoughts on how you manage you personally manage layering and, and what that looks like? Yeah, layering, you're, you're spot on. Layering's really key um, for comfort, but also for survival. Um, because as we know, if you sweat in cold weather, it freezes and it's super dangerous. And I have the the sort of unfortunate combination of being getting really cold and not having a high tolerance in my body for cold, but also being a profuse sweater. So uh, those two things put together are terrible for, um, for winter bike expeditions. And so I've like, my hands get sweaty all the time. My feet get sweaty all the time. So I've really had to be kind of um, really conscientious about the layering. And so, I mean, obviously you have to figure it out for yourself, trial and error, but I will say all the base layers are always wool uh, because those stay warm when wet for hands and feet. I've got multiple layers. So if one gets wet, another dry one is available. You know, you're drying a pair of gloves inside on against your body. If it gets wet while you've got the other ones on. So you're moisture management all the time of one having options of base layers in case they get wet um, and then drying them while you're riding. Um, so so that's a really, really important is what is your base layer and, and what's your plan for if they get wet? Um, a Do second you use, one uh, is, oh, sorry. No, yeah. please go ahead. No, please go ahead. No, no. What were you going to ask? I well, can, okay. All right. I don't want you to lose your, your spot. No. Uh, do you, do you use first light? uh gear like your your wool under under garments or under yeah you know i use a lot of different brands and here's where i'd say look it doesn't have to be a cycling brand so uh, you know my long underwear are i think they're black diamond and they're because they're three-quarter length and i i really like three-quarter length and those were the ones i found my pants that i ride in yeah it's from a, a hunting company that makes wool really active hunting gear. And so don't be, you know, a lot of mountaineering gear, um, Nordic cross country skiing gear. Um, this hunting gear is for aerobic. So any aerobic activity in the outdoors, you can look at some of those brands, um, uh, backcountry skiing. Um, so you can look to some of those brands for, for some of your layering pieces. And so I've got sort of a hodgepodge and yeah, the pants I love are first light. Um, you know, I'm wearing some, a lot of different brands for layers. A lot of my, um, 
other wool layers and my bike layers are Velocio. So of course you're bringing your bike shorts into the picture. Um, the, a lot of the gloves I wear are Velocio, but it's, it's a mix. It's a total mixed bag. Um, so the other thing I was going to say about, about dressing and layering is, um, lots of thin layers is, is better than one gigantic big layer because there aren't as many options and we tend to want to oh it's zero degrees i want to put on the biggest hugest gloves and jacket i can well remember we're moving and you've got blood flow and you're going to get warm so it's always surprising that you could be in 10 degree weather and i might just be in my velocio wool base layer and a vest which is like, whoa, that's weird, but you're moving and working hard. So people tend to bring too thick of layers and bring too many. Um, of course, I always bring like a, you know, sort of an oh shit puffy coat layer, like I said, <laughs> or if you have to stop, you have a mechanical. So you basically have your stop layer if you're going to sleep out or you have a mechanical or something. And then you have your moving layers that are, you know, thinner, lighter, meant to be, you know, added on top of each other. I will say with layering is you've got your base layers, that's wool, you know, you've got some wind layers, everything's got to fit on top of each other. And so as I get more toward the outer layer, I'm actually buying a bigger size than I would wear normally. And you're also often wearing a hydration pack. So as you get towards your outer layers, you know, I'm typically a medium. I've got large in those so that I can make sure if I need to put everything on all together and then the puffy coat, which is the outer layer that can fit on over everything. The yeah. same thing with gloves. If you're like, I bring three or four layers of gloves instead of one big glove, I've got thin, two thins, one medium, one thick, plus my pogies. So the thick ones are size extra large so they can fit over everything with a hand warmer inside if needed. So you kind of think of yourself as you Michelin man out and build your <laughs> layers. Um, they got all fit together. Yeah. It's like a, they fit like a like puzzle and a Jenga sort of a thing. And then you could skip the middle one and put the top one on. So it is kind of a cool puzzle to figure out, but start with the base of wool and then just kind of look what you have in your closet. I guess I do that first before you go investing a whole bunch of money. And, you know, I went, the riding pants are a good example. The first like hunting pants that I wear riding, um, you know, I was looking and looking and looking for riding pants and trying ones and sending them back. And then I just went into my drawer and I'm like, I really love these pants. I love where the pockets are. They're made of wool. And I tried riding in them and I love them and they fit over my boots. So look in your closet first before you spend a lot of money and see what you've got from your other sports. Yeah, I have. Uh, the reason I asked about first, first light is I have like over $3,000 worth of fir first light gear. I mean, <laughs> I have the entire layering system from their underwear all the way up to their biggest uh puffy jacket and pants and the whole but it's all for it's all designed for hunters you know but it's great just outdoor gear so yeah it doesn't need to be specifically for cycling just needs yeah. to be good good outdoor cold weather gear Absolutely. one question i had was and uh, is you were talking about switching out uh socks or gloves drying them out with your body temperature um, I, I struggled the same, like I run cold and my hands and feet are like always sweaty. And yeah. so I struggle and that's why I've spent so much money on cold weather gear. Cause I'm always yeah. fighting, uh, trying to keep my extremities 
warm. So I have a couple questions here. One, when do you know when when what is the yeah indicator that you say okay I'm gonna stop right now and switch out my socks or switch out my gloves, um, and yeah let's start there. Um, gloves all the time because it's easy to manage taking a glove take on off so you don't want your hands to sweat. Um, pogies are beautiful. Often I'm riding with no gloves and pogies are these big sleeping bags that you put on your handlebars <laughs> and you put your hands in them so that you can operate your shifting and your gears without having to have a gigantic glove on. Um, so those are, a, that would be a, a first investment, um, I might suggest for someone. And so often I have no gloves on inside the pogies um, because, because they're kind of warm like a sleeping bag anyway. So hand management, yeah, I'm taking gloves on and off constantly so that they're not sweating. And I just leave it in the pogie. It's just in there. So hands are easier to regulate. Socks take a little bit more because obviously then you got to take your gator off, your boot off, all your stuff. So sock layering um, or changing would be um, one if if my feet are starting to get cold um, and you're feeling like they're freezing and, you know, that's an awareness of like, oh, okay, I should stop and change my socks. If I know my feet are sweaty, but I'm warm and I'm moving and I'm, I'm doing okay, I would might wait until I get to a shelter or I'm going to go to sleep and I put dry socks on when I go to sleep. So that's a little bit more of a timing because you're taking your boots off. But absolutely, if you feel like you're freezing, that's the time to stop and change. Um, yeah. Otherwise, if you're doing okay, but you know you're getting wet, but you've got a spare pair of socks, you might choose where where you're going to do that change yeah interesting i'd never even thought about warming up like having an extra pair and warming one up while you're using the other one so yeah <laughs> that's great um what about logistically with all these layers uh where are they going how easily are you accessing them you know i mean yeah what does that look like for you yeah, so I pack sort of, um, and the good thing about a fat bike, we've got frame bags, we've got panniers, we've got a front roll. Usually, if you're, if even if I'm going out for a couple hour ride, I don't have the front roll on, but I've got my frame bag and my panniers just stay on there for the winter. So I yeah. can throw a jacket in there, I can throw water in there, and I don't have to set my bike up for every ride. Um, and, but when I'm, I'm doing something that's serious and committed, I, I pack the bike really strategically and I put the layers that I don't, that either are for nighttime or I hope not to use very often. I pack those the deepest. So they're stuffed in somewhere, um, that, you know, I can get to my puffy coat if I need it, if I have a mechanical, um, but it's, it's, it's maybe right on the end of my front roll, for example. So I know it's on the right side. I can just open that up and get it out if there's an emergency, but otherwise it's going to stay packed there for the day. Um, right in, you know, more accessible, like right in the front of my frame bag might be my light, super, super light Velocio windbreaker that I can just throw on, off, on, off. And that's a really nice temperature regulator. And it's right at my fingertips. Like I don't even have to swing a leg back over the bike. I'll stop. I'm still straddling the bike. I can throw that jacket on. I can throw a a hat or a face thing on. Um, So I've got that stuff right at my fingertips. My gloves are always 
in my pogies again. So I don't even have to take a leg over the bike. I can change out my glove. I have to stop, but I can change out my gloves at any time. Um, sort of the medium layer. Those are going to maybe be in my panniers strapped right on the back. One zip, you know, I could get to it. So you kind of think about how often will you use that piece of equipment and if it's going to be on and off all day, then, it, you know, it's right at your fingertips. Yeah. What what should be the expectation for warmth? If you manage all your layers correctly, if you got your system dialed, I have no idea. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like, do you get to a point where your feet and your hands and everything is warm and you're feeling good or is everything kind of cold, but it's tolerable? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And honestly, um, if you're not sweating and you're not cold, you, you nailed the sweet spot, you know, okay. you're there. But I will say that changes, you know, every hour or, you know, um, you know, it might get windy. And so then you're like, Oh, I got to throw a jacket on. I feel a little chill. So if you're the, the ideal is that you've got this like nice little homeostasis of you are comfortable. You're a comfortable riding temperature and it's totally doable. Um, it works. So you're not, if you're, you're not sitting there freezing on the bike all the time, you're actually really comfortable, which is kind of awesome. Um, and yeah, conditions are changing all the time. So again, that goes back to patience. If you feel a little chill, put a jacket on. If you start to put us, if you start to sweat, you got to vent or, you know, unzip or take a jacket off or whatever. So that's just, that's just kind of part of the deal. <laughs> yeah. Are, are there tips and tricks that you've developed to, to like regulate your body temperature and, you know, stay, cause obviously you don't want to get sweaty. I would assume you never want to get sweaty. You don't want that moisture. Um, that's going to be hard to overcome. Are there tips and tricks that you've, uh, you've developed to kind of help manage and regulate your body temperature? Well, yeah, I think, again, it goes back to gear selection. So starting with wool and thinner base layers than you think you want. Um, so even in, you know, minus, you know, below zero temperatures, I'm often just wearing a really, you know, hundred thin, thin weight wool long underwear and my first light pants. And that's it. You know, I've got puffy pants and rain pants and other things, but typically, you know, I can go to pretty cold temperatures with just two thin layers on my lower body. So, um, so yeah, learning to maybe put some thinner layers on. And then also when you look for your layers, um, Velocio Apparel is one kind of cycling jacket that I really love because they have reverse zippers. So you can unzip from the bottom. Um, without, and, and that's a great way to vent your torso and, and, you know, your body is, is a reverse zip jacket because when you unzip from the top, then you've got this balloon effect. It's really awkward. And so that's one thing I really love a feature I would look for in, in any jacket for winter riding is a reverse zip. Um, other strategies, again, patience of stopping and changing, um, and yeah. realizing that, uh, winter bike expeditions, you know, this sort of figuring out of the gear is never finished. So, <laughs> you know, um, and Jay says this as well is that, you know, e each event is different. I've got a few of my staple things that I know the socks I like and this and that, but I'm always trying different vests, trying a different jacket, trying a different combination of things. Um, because there's always new equipment being developed. Um, so yeah. 
don't get frustrated if like what worked for you last year, then you don't like it anymore or, or you blow that jacket out and you're like, ah, I got to find a new one. Um, (laughs) yeah. One, uh, one piece of gear that I have come to like for winter riding is a, is a puffy vest. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I, I just recently got one like last year for the first time. And I, I, the reason I got it is because of Lael. I always see Lael in a, in a puffy vest. And I was like, there's gotta be something, something going on here. And I, I quickly learned that at least for the winter riding that I do, just regulating my core temperature, you know, my arms don't get as cold and it, it, just kind of keeps me warm. And if I get too warm, I just unzip it. And then it's, uh, you know, letting out some hot air and kind of cooling me down. Um, is it, is a vest something you found to be useful? Is that a good piece of uh, yeah. equipment? Yeah, I use a vest. I don't use a puffy vest, but I've got a, a wind vest and, and then sort of a mid layer vest. And exactly to your point, your core is, you know, your survival. So keep your core warm. Um, and a lot of times you're good to go. And, and often they pack smaller than something with sleeves. So you'll think again of your layering system as you build it probably should include a vest. Most people have a vest of some sort, whether it's puffy or another material, because it's just a nice way to add a layer without adding a lot, something with arms, you know? Um, yeah. And, and the same I would think about with hoods, you know, as you look at, I don't, yeah. everything I have doesn't need to have arms. Everything you have also doesn't need to have a hood. So like, you know, your wind layer might have a hood, but your, you know, mid layer doesn't have a hood or vice versa. Right. Cause if you have like everything, you've got 14 hoods, then, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of bulk and it takes up space. So kind of yeah, think about good. those things where, because you're carrying all your stuff. So yes, you want bring all the layers but you want them to be packable and small and really do the job um you can always bring more stuff but what happens then is is you get sort of lost in your gear of like where's that thing and you have too many things we do this with you know and i teach fat camp with jay is we have everyone lay out their gear and then you know we're like well what didn't you use today and can this substitute that and can those two things together equal that piece and so how can you edit and combine edit out things so that not so that you're cold but so that you have what you need without a lot of overkill and i i think that's kind of the first mistake new riders make and i still make too because you're scared of being cold and you pack your fears so you're like i'm scared of being cold i'm bringing puffy pants and a puffy jacket and a fleece jacket and a this jacket and and you just are taking your clothes for a bike ride instead of actually <laughs> using them. And, you know, that happens. But you'll get, as you get better, start to edit and have you'll have the confidence that you can get rid of some things. Yeah. Yeah, the hoods is a good point. I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, you don't want 14 layers, as you said, all with hoods. you got to figure out which. And I would even think, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, but I would even think, like, you could have uh, one hood underneath your helmet and then a, a larger one that even went on top of your helmet, maybe is that a, a, a system that you use? Or? Yeah. Everything's got to work together a hundred percent. And so, yeah, if you can't fit a jacket over your helmet or over your layers, then, then that's not the right jacket. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about eating in cold weather and, and, and camp cooking. I, I'm, I don't even know if you do much cooking when you're doing like the ITI. Um, what, but uh, this is something I learned recently on a podcast is like people who um, 
who like shiver or like constantly cold, they burn between like 500 and 2,500 extra calories per day. Just being cold is going yeah. to take a lot of uh, caloric um, e- expenditure. So um, what are you doing? What what foods work well? How are you, um, yeah, how are you fueling your body in cold weather? Yeah, it's a good point that, yeah, when you're shivering, you are burning more um, and your body's just trying to keep warm. So the, that goes back to your layering. You don't want to be freezing cold while you're riding. You just don't want to be sweating. You want to be comfortable, but not sweating. Because again, then you're hopefully not burning as many calories. Um, but I will say that that first year of Iditarod, my big failure is I couldn't eat. Um, the food I brought was either frozen or I didn't like it. Um, I didn't have the patience to stop and eat. And I just dug myself into a hole I couldn't get out of. And I ended up finishing and winning, but only because of pure grit and like the, and the amount of experience I had to just push forward. But I had like the most epic bonk of all bonks because I was afraid to sleep outside and I wasn't eating well. Um, so I came back from that and I did some research with goo and a nutritionist that works at goo. And, you know, I learned how to eat just fine. You know, it's, it's sort of one of my superpowers in, in non freezing cold bike weather. Um, but I, I really failed on that in my first big winter bike expedition. And so I came home and was like, okay, you're, you're looking at for food. You're looking at what has the most, a, a few things, what has, um, uh, the most calories for the least amount of weight and also, um, you know, what is palatable and can be eaten while frozen and also what's going to provide nutritional value. So you're looking at all those things, weight, calories, nutritional value, and, and can you eat it? Um, and you're kind of scoring each food based on that. A, a goo gel, for example, is going to be frozen. Um, it's And for 100 calories, it's a little heavy. You know, so you're weighing that kind of stuff. A powder drink mix like like goo. Um, I use um, Roctane. I really love That's super lightweight can be carried on a bike. Add warm water to it and you're going to get 250 calories for something that doesn't weigh a lot and is, is transportable. So um, I came home from that first big failure and kind of studied, you know, which nuts have the most calories. And I started making, and you know, what, what macro micronutrients, and I don't need to get too, too dorky into it. And, but, um, also glycemic index, uh, which is how long will a carbohydrate burn? Is it a stick or paper like you put on to start a fire or is it a big log that's going to burn longer? And so you end up with a mix of those things. Um, you need to try to eat more calories when you're cold. You know, um, you're gonna, you're gonna not be able to consume the amount that you'll burn. Um, but it needs to, it needs to be palatable. So what I did is I ended up making a bunch of food and trying it at home, putting it in my freezer, making everything into little bite sized balls. So one thing with a bar or anything, you try to go to bite it when it's frozen, you're going to break your teeth off. So everything gets segmented down into bite sized pieces that you can 
throw in your mouth and keep riding and sort of like melt it in your mouth for a yeah, while. Yeah, you thaw it out while you're riding. Yeah, totally. So I made a bunch of food. I, you know, I've got a cookie recipe that's got a ton of calories. Um, and I make them in a little tiny balls. And then I, I also really, bacon is a lot of calories for, um, very lightweight. So for Iditarod, I usually make up a bunch of bacon and I put it all in Ziploc so you can segment, you know, trying to eat a couple thousand calories per day, which is really hard to do, even though you might be burning 5,000. And so I break it into, um, I break it all into like 400 calorie, you know, I'm trying to get two to 400 calories an hour and I break all everything down into those kind of segments so that I don't have to think about it. I can just grab a baggie got four slices of bacon it's 400 calories so i know i'm getting the nutrition that i need and the calories that i need on kind of a time lapse dropper sort of a a a schedule so food food's a big deal you end up putting a lot of it on your body or in your pogies to warm the food so it might go from your bag to your body, eventually to your mouth. So you've got this sort of flow of like, you know, unfreezing your food um, in certain places. But I will say, you know, we all know this kind of nutritional stuff, but when you're wearing a face mask and you've got to stop, like you can't eat while fat biking. You have to stop, put a foot down, get out some food, put it in your mouth, keep going. And that's just part of the patient's process. And I didn't, I wasn't patient that first year. And so I just kept riding, 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 going, I'll eat later. And I got into real trouble and, um, got really behind. And then you just don't feel like eating and same, you've got a face mask. It's cold. You're just like, Oh, so it's almost, yeah, you're choosing nutritionally, but you're also choosing what can you get in your mouth under your face mask and then like tuck it all back in so your face doesn't get frostbite it's such a pain (laughs) it is a pain it's hard but here's where i you know when i get frustrated i don't want to stop to eat i'm like everybody has to stop to eat so we're all on an equal playing field and the people who don't stop to eat are gonna bonk and so i'm gonna pass them anyway so you know i kind of like go through that in my head like you know we all have to eat we all have to go to the bathroom. We all have to melt water, you know, and drink water. So, so you do those things efficiently and then you're not put behind. So when you pack your food, you want to make sure it's right there, you know, that you've got right on your handlebar, you've got, you know, maybe 500 to a thousand calories right there. So you've got you maybe your food for the day. And then the next, you know, when you stop to do something, you're going to move more food up to the front so that it's quick and easy to get at. You don't have to dig around in a bag. So the organization of your bike, your clothes, your food, your gear, and being kind of um, really specific about that, that's how you do well in the outdoors because you minimize the stops, you minimize, you know, messing around looking for your batteries, you minimize your exposure. Yeah, exactly. Um. You keep talking about how you put things on your chest, food and socks and gloves and everything. Do you have any kind of like pouch or anything that like holds it there or is it just your clothes that kind of keeps it all tight? Yeah, you know, this is that's actually really um really where you're going to the fun kind of gets going is is actually sewing pockets and things into your inner <laughs> layer. And so it. I wear I wear a um a Revelate Designs Wham pack that's like a water thing that, you know, on my back, right over my base layer so that your water doesn't freeze. But then I sewed onto the front of it, um, um, camelback chase vest, 
which is the straps have a whole bunch of pockets, a whole bunch of things. So I basically took two pieces of equipment, merged them together. So my hydration pack has a whole bunch of pockets on it. And so I can keep my phone, I can keep electronics, I can keep food in there. Um, and then, you know, my next layer jacket has inside pockets. So, you know, if, if the piece you really love doesn't have pockets, um, sew them in, or you can find all sorts of those little attachment things, um, in various places, but that's where it gets kind of creative and fun is how do you design a vest or, or what are you going to have to basically use your body as a warming machine, um, for your electronics and your food and all, and your water and all your other stuff. And I know Jay does a, he has a good seamstress. He alters a lot of his gear. Um, and the, you're starting to see, you know, gear that is designed for being outdoors is going to have really cool pocket configurations, just like those pants that we were talking about. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. I love it. I love the DIY stuff. All right. Yeah. Water. Uh, you touched on it a little bit, but obviously how do you keep hydrated and how do you keep your water from freezing? What are your, what do you do? Um, well, I'm always wearing a, a pack, a hydration pack that's next to my body. And so the water in that, you know, it's on your back. Um, that's not going to freeze. What can freeze on that is the hose. So there's hose management of tucking it under your arm, keeping it inside your jacket. So, so yeah, every time you have to drink, you're unzipping, pulling that hose out, taking a drink, pushing the air back, backflow so that there's not water in the ah, tube that helps it. So you always want to blow the water back out of the tube into the main body. Um, and then you put it back in your jacket. Um, so that's kind of the management of that. And then I also carry, um, a thermos that, that, you know, is for warm water and that'll last a long time. I carry an insulated bottle. And so I'll, I'll have kind of a variety of ways that I'm drinking. Um, and if I get to a place with hot water or I've melted snow and made water, I put that in the thermos and the insulated bottle. I drink those first cause they're warm. They warm me from the inside. Um, and they've got the insulating factor. And then I go to the hydration pack hydration pack last because, you know, yeah, you've got to unzip and get that thing into your mouth. But again, it's a process. It's a thing. Figure out, um, you know, I've got the, the thermos and the water bottle right close at hand on my handlebars, um, with an insulated, uh, water bottle. Um, it won't last long. I know that it's going to freeze, you know, depending on the temperatures, even though it's insulated, it's going to freeze, you know, within an hour perhaps, or start to freeze. So that's why I drink that one first. Um, a little tip with water bottles, if you've got them in your sort of your, um, on your handlebar there, um, is turn them upside down because the first place the bottle is going to try to freeze is uh. in the um, drink mechanism. And so make sure it's closed. But if you turn that upside down, then um, it won't freeze as quickly. So that's another little tip for for uh, using water bottles outside. And a thermos, it's heavy, but it's going to keep water warm for a number of hours. And that's a really nice treat out on the trail to, again, mix in um, uh, like a goo recovery drink and make a sort of a hot chocolate thing or to mix in some soup or a tea. Um, it's a really nice treat on the trail to have have warm water and it warms you from the inside. So if things are really serious, you've got to stop, you've got to do a mechanical, you're really getting cold, warm water into the body is one of the first ways when you're stopped to help warm you from the inside out. 
Yeah. So you talked about melting snow and warm water. Are you ever boiling snow um, and melting it that way? Yeah. 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 So the last time I did the ITI, I did a rod. Like I said, we elected my husband and I to um, really be unsupported, self-supported. And so we didn't use the shelters or the places where they had hot water or even, even cold water. Um, and so all of our water came from melting snow. So three times a day, basically we had to stop trail side, pull out the stove, pull out the stuff, melt the snow, fill our hydration pack, fill all our bottles, and then put the stove away, do all that. And so that was, and the reason we elected to do the last time I did the 350 that way is if I have an ultimate goal of going to Nome, which is a thousand miles, I better be, and there's a lot less support. I better be adept at lighting my stove and melting snow for water and making right. sure I, I can handle that. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, you, some of these races, a lot of these races, they have, um, aid stations and, you know, you know, you're going to get water there. But you should always be capable and ready of melting snow and using the stove because it's basically it's your safety net. Um, if an emergency happens and you're not near one of those aid stations, you need to make warm water. You need to be able to get in your sleeping bag. And those are the things that I practice at home. I would ride out like a mile from my house and sleep out overnight. I slept in my backyard one time in the snow yeah. just to try my equipment. I literally went out on my deck you know, and I'm like, I'm going to sleep out tonight. It's, it's zero. I'm going to see how this bag works and how I feel. And, um, and then I rode out and like made dinner, made a dehydrated meal for dinner just to practice with my stuff, um, to make sure that you don't want to be using that stuff or feel insecure about it during an emergency and be like, I'm not, I can't get my stove lit. I can't get into my sleeping bag. So I practiced in my backyard a bunch. <laughs> I, I said that on the podcast so many times, like wh- whenever you're getting into anything, whether, you know, it's bike packing or you want to go winter riding, you know, go pack up your stuff, ride around the block, ride around the neighborhood and then sleep in your backyard. And if things yeah. go bad, you can just go inside your house. But it's a great way to test your system, test your skills and get acclimated to whatever the activity is that that you're trying to do. And so I'm so glad you said that, because <laughs> even the great Rebecca Rush will sleep in her backyard, which is uh, proof and point that we should all just test your stuff, you know, build, build up to these things. Don't just go off and get yourself in a, in, in trouble. Yeah. And trying it with a safety net is super important. You're, you're, like you said, you're in your backyard. If it's not working, you just go inside, you know, yeah. and you're like, okay, what would I do differently next time? So yeah, operating with a safety net until you have the confidence to be without a safety net is really important. Electronics. Uh, another thing that is, uh, doesn't perform well. Uh, batteries don't last as long. Um, I don't even know how well Garmin's work at minus 40. I mean, I have no idea, but, uh, what do you do to manage your electronics and make sure you don't, you know, end up without lights or without your Garmin or whatever it is that you need? Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, batteries and technology are getting way better. Um, they're lasting longer. Um, typically for navigation purposes, um, I've got three ways to navigate in case one of them, you know, dies. So I've got, you know, some sort of Garmin. Typically I'll use the e-trex because it has external batteries. So you can bring replacement batteries. Um, 
if I'm not going to do that, then you've got a battery cache or, you know, and you've planned out how long that's going to last. But for navigation, I'll have some sort of a digital, uh, you know, Garmin type thing. Um, I'll have on my phone, which we all bring our phone to take pictures um, on my phone. I'll also have the map of the course in maybe one or two different apps. And then I always have a paper map. Um, I'm just old school and, you know, like for fat pursuit, I have a paper map and I highlight the route and fold it up and put it in a Ziploc and it's probably never comes out. Um, but I always have that as it's lightweight. It's your ultimate safety net if all the digital stuff fails. Um, so that's what I'm doing, uh, for those things. For any batteries that you're carrying, know that even they, they don't last as long. You've got to use lithium batteries, first of all, um, if you're using, um, replaceable batteries and then anything that isn't in a device, um, needs to be warm. So you're putting it next to your body or in your pogies for storage, your extra batteries. Um, you might, if you've got extra hand warmers, you might put those around some of your batteries, but your body is the ultimate hand warmer, you know, and it, so finding ways to store stuff again, it's a little bit of a Michelin man, but storing, storing batteries and electronics on you or in inside a jacket pocket, um, protected from the elements is going to help them last longer because you're always managing that same with lights, um, and other things. And that's always the, when you're planning for something, you're, you know, just like you're planning your food, how many hours I think it will take, how many nights will I be out? You kind of just don't know because condition dependent, if you're walking your bike one mile an hour, you might be out three times as long as you planned for. So I did rod, for example, you know, I've done that course a few, three times, you know, one year it took me three and a half days. Another year it took me eight days, same course, different conditions. <laughs> And yeah. so it's it's hard to plan for that kind of stuff and really manage like, oh, how many how many batteries do I need? And then you start um, taking stock while you're out riding and and turning the headlamp on low, you know, or if it's a full moon and you don't need it, turn it off. You're always trying to, one, conserve your own energy, but conserve of your own battery yourself, but also conserve the energy of the electronics and the batteries that you have. If you don't need your Garmin on, turn it off. If you don't, yeah. And you're just saving those things. And I do a mix of a sort of portable cache battery versus, um, versus external batteries, especially for something like Iditarod, you're, you're sending drops, food drops, um, two weeks in advance. So you can have a little five pound thing and it can have food and batteries in it. And so, you know, having devices that can take both either be charged by a cash battery or take an external battery. That's kind of your safety net of if your cash battery runs out. You know what I'm picturing as we're talking is, um, uh, the you know the the criminal looking sort of a guy with a big jacket. You go into town, he like <laughs> opens his jacket, and he's got like watches and coats and whatever you know whatever he's selling. But that's what I'm picturing is is just you I mean you're gonna have batteries and food and gloves and it's all gonna be around your body and yeah. uh, you got to figure out a system of yeah getting it from your bike putting it on your body, potentially eating it or putting the battery in your <laughs> garment or whatever you need to do. But it's just this ever rotating cycle of gear that you're just always 
juggling essentially. Yeah, there's a lot of management and that's where the organization, it takes a while to figure out. You might tweak yeah. it each time here and there. But yeah, when you see people doing fat bike expeditions, they always look really big and fat because they've got <laughs> a hydration pack. They look hunchback and fat because we've got all this stuff on underneath our clothes to yeah. um, keep it warm. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, it's it's really helpful information. I think people are going to, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. Uh, another piece of helpful information. Uh, going potty. Um, <laughs> it's. I mean, nobody wants to go to the bathroom whenever it's negative forty, uh, but we all have to go to the bathroom. So, any any tips for managing that? How do you deal with that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, gosh, I mean, yeah, everybody has to go. Um, it's a little, maybe a little easier for guys to go number one than it is for women. Um, for sure. but in your clothing selection, you know, make sure you have stuff that you can pull down easily. You know, I don't wear bib shorts when I'm doing winter bike expeditions because I don't want those straps. I want to be able to just pull my pants down. Um, so that's part of the management. Make sure, you know, it, it's, it's not hard to pull your pants down. Um, but honestly, it's not that big of a deal. It's like, it's sort of weird. You think you don't want to expose, you know, your bits to the elements, but honestly, like they don't get that cold. It's so weird. Like huh. you pull your pants down and you're like, okay, that's not a big deal. And, and then you're done and you pull them back up. So, um, it's really not as big of a deal as it seems. Um, obviously if there's a, you know, you're going to be in a place where there's an actual bathroom or whatever, always take advantage of that. Um, put on more chamois cream, make sure, you know, just kind of take advantage of that. Even if you don't have to go, um, you do want to go off the trail. So that's just common courtesy etiquette. And, um, yeah, whether it's, I would assume, uh, dig a hole first, if you got to go number two. (laughs) <laughs> minimize yeah, your yeah i mean you're in snow so ultimately that hole is is gonna you know not really be down in the earth but at least maybe it's you know it's um if you can get it close to the ground and you know in a tree well or something like that then then that's great but um yeah we're yeah. not i'm not necessarily packing that stuff out i am packing out my toilet paper I'm packing out any stuff that, you know, I bring an extra Ziploc that's for trash and things like that. So just because you put your toilet paper under the snow doesn't mean it's hidden because when spring (laughs) comes, you know, there's going to be paper. So do take your own things out, but otherwise you just, you just do your business. It's not that big of a deal. The one caveat I will say, you've got so many layers on and big boots and all that stuff. Make sure you don't pee on your pants or poop on your <laughs> pants and your clothes because often you're tired and you don't get them all the way down. Or so make sure you don't go on yourself, I guess. Yeah. Is, uh, because I, is- I have done that when I'm just too lazy and just like, oh. Um, one little trick that's kind of, you know, useful is you're trying to step off the trail. So you're in deeper snow and you're sort of like hanging your butt out there. Um, I'll lay my bike down on the edge of the trail and then I actually use my bike to like hold on so I can lean back a little further. And then I use my bike to sort of pull myself back up. Cause once you step off the trail, you're in deep snow and you don't sort of, so I put my bike there as like a little handrail sort of. And that works pretty well to make sure one, you get your butt further off the trail and not over your pants. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great tip because the snow is going to 
uh, kind of anchor your bike down because uh, yeah. it'll be plugged yeah, the bike's in the snow. Heavy. So it's not yeah. going anywhere laying on its side. So it becomes yeah. this sort of, uh, yeah, a handrail for you to hold on to. Pro <laughs> tip, pro tip. <laughs> Wonderful. This is, man, this is like, I'm learning so much. This is, this is great. I love it. Um, I think maybe you could give some tips on what resources are available outside of this excellent podcast. But let's just say somebody wanted more tips. I think Jay's Fat Camp is probably a great one. What resources are out there that you think are valuable and people should seek out um, to help educate them and prepare them for cold weather riding? Yeah, I mean, for me, I help teach the fat camp and fat pursuit um, training, and that is invaluable. And I volunteer to be an instructor every year because I learn so much each time going out and practicing. So that's one resource. I know that I did ride Trail Invitational, also does a winter camp um, that's accessible. So those are the things I know about um, where you can go practice. There's lots of short races. You know, we have some in Idaho. So I think that's a good way too to sort of trial and error, but also meet a network of people perhaps in your area that are doing fat biking, that are doing rides. Um, you know, in Idaho, we've got a couple, a couple fat bike races and they're always really fun. And, you know, they're not long, um, 30K sort of a thing, 20K. Um, so yeah. that's a resource that I would look for locally, wherever you live. Um, and then, I mean, this kind of a podcast is great and, and asking your friends and looking for articles. And often I'm like, if I see a picture of, you know, someone, someone doing a fat bike race that, that I, I know is a really legit person, I'll zoom in on their gear. And I actually like, look at, you know, what is, what did Jay wear? What light is he using? Mm -hmm. And, um, because things are changing all the time and the lights that I was using, you know, years ago, I'm, I'm changing it up now and, and going to, because I saw Jay had a different light. I'm like, Oh, what's he using? Um, so yeah, also just checking out what other people are doing. Right. <clears throat> it's a really great way. Cause it's a lot of stuff and it's a lot to research on your own and figure out from all these pieces of equipment. So you might as well mooch off of other people's knowledge in their blogs and, you know, their pictures and, and those kinds of things. Absolutely. Why don't you plug um, the, so Fat Pursuit is the race, I believe, and Fat Camp is the the precursor where Jay and you will will teach a course on winter riding. Um, can you, you want to plug that so people can uh, yeah, potentially it's, it's, join y'all on that? Yeah, it's actually really cool. So there's three things. There's, um, there's the fat pursuit workshop. That's, that's the week of fat pursuit. So you're, you're actually like using the, so you're hopefully signed up for the race. And then the few days before you're really dialing things in, prepping, practicing, sleeping outside. So anyone thinking of doing the fat pursuit, the fat pursuit workshop is awesome because you basically like practice with all this stuff, hone it in, and then you go right into the event. Um, and that's a three day workshop. The fat camp is longer. I think it's seven days and that's you, you go a little deeper. You don't have a race on the, the tail end of it, but you sleep more nights out. You go a little bit deeper into the theory and the practice. Um, you're melting water. You're, you're really going, you know, going deeper in that one. And then he also has kind of this, um, I forget the name of it, but he has a more introductory, um, 
uh, fat bike camp that, that is a little bit like glamping in a way where you, you know, he, you're still going to be out on the trail. You're still going to be practicing this stuff, but you're not, but the camp and sort of the sleeping area is going to be set up for you. There's a little, you know, food might be made for you instead of you having to make your own. So that's, if someone's done zero, you know, bike, winter bike expeditions, that might be a good place to start if you're really intimidated to sleep outside or you just don't have, you know, that kind of experience yet. Um, Instead of fat camp, you could call it fat, fat glamp. Well, it's called something and I can't remember what it's called, but that's kind of a a little more introductory for people who are, are getting going and they don't have everything, you know, maybe as dialed in. So, I love it. Again, I sign up as a volunteer because I learn a ton every time. And it's a chance for me to go through my own systems and practice myself um, before my races. So, and, and I'm yeah. always looking at everyone else's bike and looking at what socks they have and <laughs> what stuff they have. So it's a great sharing opportunity too. And we have people that come to camp over and over again um, for the same reason. Even if you feel like you've taken it once, you've learned everything. It's just great to practice it again. Yeah, absolutely. What is, uh, what's next for you? What's going on in your world? What are you training for right now? Mm, well, I have a ultimate goal of doing the Iditarod 1000, uh, one of these years. Um, <laughs> I'm also what I'm working on. Um, I'm really interested in some Idaho bike packing. And, uh, there is a trail here called the Idaho Centennial Trail that I've been taking off. It's sort of a, a forgotten defunct, um, trail that goes the length of Idaho from Canada down to Nevada. So, um, spending some time in my own backyard doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm also working on some storytelling of, uh, I've been on the tail end, hopefully of almost a year and a half of concussion recovery. And so I'm packaging up a lot of that information to be able to share with people because I had a pretty big struggle, um, this year of healing and the fat pursuit this year was my, you know, the first race back really. Um, so I'm working on sharing that story again, kind of with the mission of helping other people who might've had a head injury and are, are struggling to heal from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so topical. I, um, I got a concussion on February 3rd, my first, no second one, actually I got one when I was 16. Um, but yeah, it was, it was scary and I didn't like it at at all. Uh, How did you get a concussion? Um, I was riding, I was uh, bike packing. I was riding, um, in Sedona area, um, doing the Coconino route and just easy section of trail. I just clipped my handlebar on a rock and went flying down a ravine and, you know, (laughs) had to self rescue and do all this stuff. And so, yeah, that was, that's been quite a journey and the healing has been really challenging. So, um, so yeah, working on storytelling, um, and providing resources to help other folks who, who are going down that road to recovery. Yeah, I mean, it's dangerous out there and obviously we try to mitigate as much as danger as possible, but knowing knowing how to deal with injury whenever it happens is important and injury's the worst, right? It's like there's nothing you can do about it other than like just a sl- like whatever your body needs. You just have yeah. to listen to your body and it just sucks. Re- injuries are no fun. <laughs> maybe, thing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that could be the next podcast is dealing with injury and recovery and stuff. 
the other stuff I'm working on, um, obviously oh, Rebecca's Private Idaho, that's coming up year number 11. Um, yeah. and that's in September. And, um, I do have a, a training camp that I do. It's digital online community. So, um, with my coach, Tim Cusick, and it's an eight week training camp, whether you're coming to RPI or you're training for, you know, long bike rides, um, that starts in July registrations open now. So that's a fun way to glean information. And, you know, we share training tips, gear, all that kind of stuff. You get a customized training program for my coach. Um, so that's, um, RPI base camp is, is open for registration right now. So if, if somebody wants to ride and train with me for, for gravel and, and summer events, um, <laughs> yeah, you can find that on my website. Yeah, summer's coming up and Texas, we're pretty much, our, we're in spring already. So it's kind of funny to be doing this episode uh, on winter riding, but still much of like, how much more winter do y'all have in Idaho? Oh, a lot. I mean, I'm looking at, we got a snow stake outside um, in our driveway and it's it's marked at four feet right now. So we have four feet yeah. of snow still on the ground. <laughs> and I know uh, Wisconsin just held their Berkey, the big ski race that they have and i know that was just like this past week or two weeks ago and so there's a lot of winter still going around it's just not here in texas but i know that there's a lot of people who will uh, be able to take advantage of this information the cool thing about an episode like this is that winter riding uh is always winter riding and so this would be a resource that people can come back and visit from year to year which i think is awesome Anything we didn't cover that that you feel like we should have before we put a bow on it? No, that was really fun. I just, you know, invite people to to join me, you know, either with Basecamp or any of the other stuff I've got going on. You can find me on my website because, as we said at the beginning of the episode, part of my mission is to to share and get people stoked and outdoors riding. So, yeah, it's yeah. just an invitation to come along. I I love that. I'll echo that. I mean, there there's I mean, unless we did like a 10 hour podcast, I, you just can't replace that one on one like training or, or just advice and tips and stuff that you can get through um, the the opportunities that, that you have for people to join you and to train with you and to learn from you and from Jay, who's another just a, he's well known as you know, for his winter riding, he's, a, he's just a great all around, uh, all around athlete, but, uh, his winter riding has, has been pretty spectacular as well. And yeah, I appreciate you, uh, you sharing some, some tidbits. I learned, I learned a ton. This was very helpful and, uh, <laughs> I won't get to, I won't get to use any of it till probably next year, but next year I'll have a good resource to go back on. <laughs> well, you can come to Idaho. There's still, still four feet of snow on the ground, so we could go for a ride. You motivated Don't me. Don't make me. Yeah. <laughs> oh shoot a ride with rebecca rush oh my gosh i don't know if i'm i could handle that i'm such a fanboy. it's so funny i've interviewed some big people but you you're legitimately one of the people that are set me on this path and i wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the examples that you set and um so it's an honor to talk to you i appreciate your willingness to uh come and chat with me and and really, again, for being able to share some of these things that you've learned over four decades of of writing. I mean, that that information is invaluable. And and like you said in your quote, um, you can't buy those tools. You have to earn them the hard way. And uh, and you've definitely done that. I appreciate you sharing uh, some of those tips and tricks uh, with the audience today. 
Well, thank you for passing it on too and doing this podcast and, and uh, getting more people stoked and educated and empowered to get out there. It's awesome. Absolutely. Go ride your damn bike, right? That's what yeah. it's all about. <laughs> well, next time I'm in Idaho, I'm going to take you up on that ride. I might want to do it during great. the summer though. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> thank you very much, Rebecca. It's been a pleasure. See you later. Bye. All right, everybody, that is it for today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I hope that you learned as much as I did, and I hope that you're feeling a little bit more prepared to go out and face some harsher climates, some colder climates, and get out there and ride your damn bike. All right, well, we are ramping up over here at Bikes for Death headquarters. Next weekend is the East Texas Showdown. We have 210 people descending upon East Texas from all over the world. And we are scrambling to get ready and prepared for you wonderful people. If you're not going to be there this year, uh, make sure to follow the East Texas Showdown Instagram page. We are going to be providing some awesome content for you to follow along as you watch some dots. So be on the lookout for that. And until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. <laughs>